Friends, today we are beginning a new preaching series on the Apostles' Creed that is entitled Rooted. The Apostles' Creed, if you know, is the oldest and this is the simplest expression of what it is that Christians believe. We've seen versions of it pop up from as early as the 200s, if you can imagine that. Uh, by the 500s, it's basically in its final form, and by the 700s, it was codified into basically the form that, that is confessed by the church throughout the ages and throughout the world, even today. The Apostles' Creed is a, is a grassroots confession of faith, meaning it didn't originate from any church council, kind of like the Nicene Creed and other creeds, where people got together to decide what they believed. No one called a meeting to draft the Apostles' Creed. It just grew up organically within the life of the early church, most likely as a liturgy for baptism, actually. And if you would drop down in any place in the second or third century or even after, as new believers were being led to the waters of baptism, one by one they would go in and, and the, the community or the pastor would ask them, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And they would say, I believe. And they would be baptized and water would be poured over them. They would say, do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and so on? And they say, I believe. And water was poured over them again. And then they were asked, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church of God, all the way to the life everlasting? And they replied, I believe. And the waters were poured again as they were baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the most likely origin of the Apostles' Creed. So named not because the apostles wrote it, because, but because it summarizes what the apostles taught, the apostles, apostles' teaching, those who had firsthand experience with the risen Christ. And before we read our text, I want to offer a, a couple of introductory remarks about why we're doing a series on the Apostles' Creed this fall. Just two thoughts. One is because we live in an age of creeds. We live in an age of creeds. It's not just Christians. It's not just religious people who have creeds. Everyone has a creed. A creed is simply a deeply held core conviction that may or not be able to be proven, but, but provides a guiding principle for how we live our lives. That's what a creed is. A deeply held core conviction that can't necessarily be proven, that provides a guiding principle for how we live. Every one of us, all of us, have foundational beliefs that shape the decisions we make and what kind of people we are seeking to be, right? Sometimes these creeds are unwritten. They're just a part of our intuitive social imaginary. It's like, like the air we breathe. And sometimes these creeds are actually written out or sloganized. If you were to take a walk in my neighborhood, maybe in your neighborhood as well, you would see signs in people's yards that say this, in this house we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. Now we could, we could talk about the merits of each one of those statements, some of which Christians would deeply resonate with. But the point is, this is a creed. Literally. In this house, we believe it's a creed. A deeply held core conviction that can't necessarily be proven provides a guiding principle for how to live our lives. Can you imagine if Christians put signs in their yards that says, in this house we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? It'd be awesome. Maybe I'll make those as part of this series. But somehow that feels a little bit different, doesn't it? That feels less acceptable. Because secondly, we also live in an age of confusion. 
So everyone has a creed, but we have no idea how to evaluate creeds or competing creeds. How do we know what's true? The philosophical and the cultural shifts that we have experienced have created an environment where it's hard to know what's true. It's hard to know what to believe. We live in a time where the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth, which, you know, contradicts itself. We live in a time where truth is relative to just me and my circumstances and you and your circumstances. And the only sin is to tell someone they're wrong and you're right or vice versa. Welcome to the age of confusion. That was the headline of a 2015 Psychology Today article that asserts that existential confusion runs rampant in the U.S. We are confused as a people. We're confused as a community about all sorts of things about morality, about identity, and unfortunately, even about Christianity. What is it that Christians actually believe? I think if you stop five people on the street and ask them, they would give you five different answers. Does it mean that we worship in a certain way? Does it mean that we vote in a certain way? Like, what is the core of what Christians believe, and what is just loud noise and distractions? That's why we're doing this series. Because the Apostles' Creed is an ancient resource for modern challenges. This is, this is the very heart of what Christians have believed and confessed for over 2,000 years. It can offer clarity for our confusion. It can offer unity for our division. It could offer stability in an ever-shifting world. It can offer maturity as the scriptures say, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but anchored in Christ. That's why we're doing it. And the creed begins with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So now we're going to turn our attention to, the, to a reading from Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to ask the question today, how does believing in God, the Father Almighty, give us rootedness in an ever-changing world? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we are thankful for your word and for your spirit, which helps us to understand it. So I pray now you would be with these hearers and you would be with me as the one who speaks. Help me, Lord, not to proclaim myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord myself as your servant for Jesus' sake. Lord, I pray that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, would shine in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Should be seated, please. So today I want you to consider two ways in which God is a father. Two ways in which God is a father. One, he is the father of all creation. And two, he is the father of all Christians. So he's the father of all creation. He's the father of all Christians. First of all, let's talk about how he is the father of all creation. In this sense, God is a, vir- God is a father by virtue of the fact that he created the world and everything in it. This is in the same way that a man becomes a father by creating a child. Right? Regardless of whether he acts like a father or not, he is a father simply by the fact that he co-created another human being. We will see that our Heavenly Father does indeed act like a father, thankfully. But our, story, our starting point is with the fatherhood of God in general. He's the creator. He's the founder of the world. This is where the creed begins because this is where faith often begins. By understanding that the world, the universe, was made by and for God. And therefore, it's no, mis- it's no mistake that this is where Hebrews 11 begins, the so-called hall of faith in the Bible. In this, in this whole letter called Hebrews, it's all about having unshakable faith in a very shakable world. And the author turns to highlight this, this great cloud of witnesses who came before us, all these men and women who lived and died by faith, who trusted in God's promises, even if they never received what was promised to them. And so Hebrews 11 begins with a definition of what faith is. Verse 1, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Or, if you will, deeply held core convictions that you can't necessarily prove that guide how you live. Many, many people have pointed out that faith is not just assent. It's not just believing certain facts about God and who he is. These are more like gut words. These are, this, it's more like what you're trusting at at the core of your being. It's what you are banking your life on. You are placing your confidence in what God says, no matter what. Because think about it, friends, for faith to be faith, it has to have an aspect of not yet seeing, of not yet receiving. Otherwise, it would be sight. Faith is faith because it lives on the basis of God's promise. One commentator I read this week gave a great definition of faith. He says, faith lays a hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. Faith lays a hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. It's an assurance in your heart about the things God says you should hope for. It's a conviction about things that God says is true, though you cannot fully see it. And so it's fitting that the first example that the author of Hebrews applies the definition of faith to is the origin of the universe. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or you can see the universe, but you cannot see its origins. So how do we know that God made it all? Friends, because God said he did. We know on the basis of his word. 
Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. I love this. What is emphasized here in Hebrews is the power of God. Right? How did he create the world? He simply speaks, and things come into being. No fighting, no struggling with other gods like other origin of the world stories. He just speaks, and everything obeys his word. His power is seen in that he creates out of nothing. No pre-existing materials. Friends, the most creative human beings you know are all using pre-existing materials. Imagine having the power to create the materials themselves. His power is seen in the stunning variety of his creation. Friends, God could have made just one cow, but instead... He made Guernseys and Herefords and our favorite here in Wisconsin, Holsteins, a.k.a. spotted cows. Over 250 different kinds of cows. But friends, God could have made all foods taste the same. Right? Our, our bodies just need calories and energy to run on. It doesn't have to taste good. Could have been gray, tasteless mush, but God made thousands and thousands of flavors savory, sweet, salty, bitter, and sour in every combination to delight our taste buds. One commentator I read this week stokes, stoked my imagination about the father of all creation that stands behind and beyond all our scientific discoveries. He writes, There is mounting evidence that at some point about 14 billion years ago, all that we know, now know burst into being in a super hot explosion of unfathomable power. So amazing was the shockwave of that explosion that its effects have yet to die out. Indeed, new evidence suggests that this shockwave of energy essentially never will die out. Our universe continues to expand. Brothers and sisters, God and science are not at odds with each other. God and science are not at odds with each other. My daughter Nora recently came home sad because one of her friends said she didn't believe in God, but she believed in the Big Bang. And I said, Nora, what do you think it sounded like when God said, let there be light? Bang. Yeah. You don't have to choose between God and science. But friends, what does it mean? What does it mean to believe in God as the father of all creation? It is to have a confidence that his power created the heavens and the earth, and his power sustains it all. Every second of every day. It is to believe that God loves his creation. And therefore he has a purpose for it all. And his power will bring the world to its intended consummation. He made it. He keeps it. He will keep it to the very end. More personally, friends, it means to acknowledge that you operate on God's power whether you know it or not. Whether you acknowledge him or not, you live and move and have your being because of God. In Paul's famous sermon in Acts chapter 17, he says these profound words. He says, The God who made, speaking to the skeptics of his age, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man of every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And find him. 
Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In this sense, God is the father of us all, because he is the father of all creation. We exist by and through him so that we would ultimately seek him. This is the starting point of faith. To look around at the intricacies of the universe and the intricacies of the human body and see the glory of God. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In fact, friends, the scriptures go further and say that if you don't see the glory of God in creation, it is, an, it is inexcusable. Listen to Romans 1. For God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. People in Madison love, crea love the creation. If you live here, you know this. We love being outside, especially on the beautiful days we've had recently. Oh my gosh. Everywhere you go, people were biking and running and swimming and boating. Even in the dead of winter, Madisonians are still out enjoying the world. I love it. But it would be a shame if we never translate the love of creation into love for the Creator who made everything so that we would seek Him. So we would take our search from the theater of creation to the theater of the scriptures to see who this God is that made everything and what he wants to do with us. Which leads us to our second point. Not only is God the father of all creations, secondly, he is the father of all Christians. Now, friends, this is what makes the Christian faith so special. Because lots of religions have an all-powerful creator who made everything and dwells in unapproachable transcendence. But only Christianity says that this all-powerful creator is also all-personal. And he wants to relate to his creatures in such a way that they could call him Father. We take it for granted if we read the Bible. But it's stunning, it's stunning that in Hebrews 11 turns from God, turns from God creating everything out of nothing to God relating to human beings with real names. People like Abel and Enoch, who walked with God, who even pleased God. This is remarkable. Here we have an all-powerful God who is also powerfully loving, and he wants a direct relationship with human beings. How does this relationship come about? Because this is different than the first point. God may be your father in the sense that he made you and everything else, but this is next level fatherhood. This is in a category of its own. The first is general. This is special. The first is because he is the creator. This one is because he is the redeemer. The first is because he founded the world. This one is because he founded the church, a people who belong to him. How does this happen? Well, first of all, you've got to know that God is first the father of Jesus. In the mystery of the Trinity, in fact, he is the eternal father of Jesus. 
That means before God became a father by creating the world, he already was a father because he was the father of Jesus in the eternal communion of the Trinity. God is Jesus' father, not because he created Jesus. Jesus has always existed. But because he begot Jesus. As the Nicene Creed says, begotten of his father before all worlds. Basically, you create something unlike yourself. Something different, something separate from you, but you beget something the same as you, from you, part of you. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God from all eternity. From all eternity, God has been the Father of Jesus. But we got to see it when Jesus became a man through the Incarnation. We got to see this eternal relationship on full display for us to see. And it was beautiful. There's that story when Jesus was a boy and he got left behind by his parents in the temple, which really encourages me as a parent, by the way. But anyway, uh, his parents left him at the temple, came back the next day. He was still there. And Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? When Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his public ministry, Luke says that the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God is the father of Jesus and he could not be prouder of his son. So then how do human beings get to become sons and daughters of God and call them, call on him as their father? Friends, it is only in Christ. You have to be in Christ. You have to be a Christian, literally, a little Christ. Listen, if you, if you come to Christ through repentance and faith, if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus' life, that is, that he lived the perfect life for you, and if you trust in Jesus' death, that is, that he died the death that you deserved for your sins, and if you were trusting in Jesus' resurrection, that is, that he conquered your greatest enemies of sin and death on your behalf, then everything that was his is now yours, including his status as the well-beloved son of God. It's like when a, when a, when a couple who is newly married, and they go over to their in-law's house, and the husband you know, naturally says to his wife's father, good evening, Mr. Johnson, and he says, no, 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 no. Now you can call me dad, right? That didn't happen for me, sadly. But maybe it did for some of you. But by virtue of their union in marriage, her father is now his father. So also, friends, by virtue of your union with Christ, his father is now your father. He says, you can call him what I call him. You can relate to him like I relate to him. Everything that is mine is now yours. And that means in Christ, now the Father says to you, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Friends, if the gospel is true, if you were in Christ, then your Father in heaven could not be prouder of you. Do you know what it means? That the God of the universe is also your Father in Christ? You know what that could do for us? It means that in all situations in life, you can trust him. Because he's your father and he's going to take care of you. You can trust him like Abel trusted him. 
In verse 4, we read that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You can read the whole story in Genesis 4, but what we see there is that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock as a sacrifice to God. That was an act of trust. Because when he brought the firstborn, that means he didn't wait to see how many others would be born. What if that was the only sheep he had that year? He didn't wait to see if there were ten others to be born so he could spare one for God. He brought his first and he brought his best because he trusted his father to provide no matter what. That's why his faith was so pleasing to God. Can you imagine trusting your father in heaven that deeply to take care of you? Jesus said, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He'll take care of you. It means you can trust him to lead you even through death, like Enoch in our story. Enoch's this mysterious character. Verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Enoch did not see death. And brothers and sisters, in Christ, you won't either. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, and you will die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Can you imagine living in such a way knowing that death cannot even touch you? Now all I can do is usher you into the presence of God. Well, you, you will receive your eternal inheritance as his son. Actually, Christ's eternal inheritance that is now yours. That is to dwell in the presence of God forever. Faith that trusts your father like this is so pleasing to him. He loves it when his adopted children learn to trust him this deeply. This is what it means that God is the father of all Christians. I know what a comfort it is in this fallen, scary world to know that you are not alone. You belong to your father in heaven. I think the first time I remember being introduced to the Apostles' Creed, I didn't grow up confessing it, but the first time I remember it is a time in my life where I especially felt unrooted. My parents had recently divorced. I was estranged from my father. The roots that had held me in place for much of my life were suddenly gone. And I felt very much like I was like free floating through this world, that I was all on my own. So how profound it was then to enter into a church and confess a creed that millions and millions of Christians have confessed throughout all time and throughout the world, even today. It meant I was a part of something that was so much bigger than myself. It meant that I was a part of a family that spans the whole globe. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and what binds us together is that we have a Father in heaven who loves us more than we could ever imagine, who will never leave us or forsake us, who will take care of us no matter what. And we get to help each other learn to trust him. That's what it means to confess this creed, to be rooted in the love of the Father. That the Father is your Father. And this fact changes everything. 
Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, what a, what a gift it is that we can call you that because of Christ. Your scriptures say, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Father, we celebrate you as the Father of all creation, that you made everything, but we especially celebrate you as the Father of Christ. And if we are in him, then you are our Father as well. Jesus gave us permission to pray to you, our Father. The Spirit gave us permission to cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, show us the comfort and the difference it makes to know that we have a Father in this crazy world. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.